I realize your guys' show is for the lore, which seems like it actually for the lore, and it almost <laughs> works. <laughs> You're listening to For the Lore, the podcast that delves into the craft of our favorite games, whether lore, gameplay, or game design. Joining Roger is Joe, writer from WoW Insider and World of Maticus, and Vince from Massive Nerd. Hello and welcome to For the Lord, this is Roger coming to you on Monday the 14th of May for what is going to be an absolutely fantastic episode. Now if you listened to last week you would have heard us talking about the fantastic Felicia Day interview that was with David Gator who of course is from Bioware and has worked on a multitude of titles from Baldur's Gate 2 to Neverwinter Nights to Dragon Age which is the one that most people will think of when they think of him. Now, what we wanted to do is we wanted to have an episode that would have a common theme as well, which would be, in this case, talking about, uh, well, we wanted to talk about companions, their effect on not just the games that we've played up to date, but modern games as well. And uh, and then, so as I was thinking about it more, I actually got a hold of the person that I think has probably influenced that topic the most, and that is, of course... Mr. David Gator. So David, thank you very much for agreeing to come on the show. We have been, like I said before, fans of your work for quite some time now. We've talked about not just Dragon Age at length on the podcast, but your novels as well. So welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So now a lot of folks, like I said, primarily know you for your work on in Dragon Age, uh, but you've had a lot of success with titles prior to that too. Like you started with Bioware back in 99 and then you had started with Baldur's Gate 2. So what were you doing on that title? Um, let's see, the, the, uh, Bioware had just finished uh, Baldur's Gate 1, and they were look on, looking at uh, hiring some new people, getting some new writers, uh, so they brought me on as a writer, um, and I, I was just put on, um, oh, I actually did quite a bit for that game, uh, I did uh, a lot of Athkatla, I wrote uh, the, 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 the Drow City, um, and a number of the companions, uh, um, Three of the romance companions and Faconia, Airy, Animan. Uh, you know, it, there was so much writing in that game. I think it was uh, uh, 1.2 million words, and oh, I had wow. a nice chunk of them. So, yeah, yeah. But back back when there was more text. And that's like, I mean, that's a pretty big leap for considering that you hadn't been doing writing as a career prior to that either, or working in games. So to right. go from there to be working on what was a massive title at the time as one of the, the writers, that's a pretty big leap. Yeah, I guess it, it, it didn't seem like that at the time. It was just a, a Bioware. I remember when I came for the interview, um, I, I hadn't actually applied, which I always find this, this story kind of funny because people ask me for advice on how to get in the games industry. And my advice is generally, well, not, not the way I did it. <laughs> I kind of just, uh, fluked into it, which I recognize makes me incredibly lucky. But, uh, um, I was just, uh, Bioware uh, at the time had about uh, uh, 60 or 70 employees, I think, total. I was number 72, I think. And, and uh, uh, 
they did, had just asked some of their the other designers and said, if you know anybody who's local <laughs> and uh, who, who has done anything, anything game-related uh, to completion, because, I mean, everybody started something, um, then let us know. And, and uh, I had a friend of mine who was working at the company, and he uh, handed to James Olin, who was the lead designer, um, this, this rule book. Like, I mean, I, I, I didn't work in games, but, you know, I, I putzed around and, and, and uh, made stuff. And, and uh, there was a... a, a, a a play-by-email game, uh, RPG game that I had put together, and, and the person at, at Bioware uh, was in that game, and he, so he gave the rule book to James, and James thought that was kind of cool, and contacted me. So at at that time, I didn't even know there was a game company in Edmonton. Yeah, really, what are the odds? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So when I went for the interview, it was uh, we had a, an office on White Avenue that was above above the uh, Chapters bookstore, and um, it, it was very, it seemed a little fly by night. There was sort of, uh, wiring hanging out of the, the ceiling and visible ducts and, and it was a little, a little dicey. And, and, uh, so I, I went in and, and, uh, James explained the whole thing and I was like, okay, this is interesting. I mean, it's really cool, but I didn't want to take a job that uh, I would just end up being back on the street a month later. So I actually turned them down. Oh, geez. Because <laughs> um, I, I was actually I uh, was running a hotel at the time. I was uh, the general manager for a local, just a small local hotel. But you know, it was, it was a it was a good job, and it uh, it was uh, let me live on my own and, and left me time to sort of work on my game stuff. And it, it seems stupid in retrospect, but at the time it was like, yeah, I work for a local uh, video game company. I don't think so. And I went uh, into work on that was on uh, uh, Saturday, and I went into work on Monday. And my regional manager was there, and, and uh, uh, which was weird. And he told me that the, the the management company I worked for had been bought over by a larger one, and as just a sort of part of their regular process, they just let go of all the GMs. So I was walking out of, with my box of, of stuff from my desk, kind of still shell shocked. I thought, well. You know what's the harm? Maybe I will take that job and just see how it goes. Yeah, no kidding. At, yeah. at the time too, Bioware was again this earlier on in game development and such. So it was it was a different time than now, where you have so many um, kids coming out of schooling with the degree in some sort of game design or, or you know art, uh, or video art, and things like that. Um, but I mean, you read some of the stuff that happened with Bioware and how they landed some of the the incredible talent that they have. And I mean, these guys were like driving a garbage truck and all kinds of like delivering furniture. And then all of a sudden they're just making these phenomenal games. Yeah. Well, I mean, what's the difference between us and, and everybody else out there? I mean, Oh, I agree. Uh, we're just people that managed to luck into a job and doing something we love. right? Yeah. So, so from Baldur's Gate too, then you also worked on Knights of the Old Republic and uh, I was reading, too, that you worked on the di- design for that, and you actually worked on probably the most famous companion of all time, HK-47, uh, as yeah. well as some of the other ones. So what was that yes. like? Uh, well, that was, uh, I think that, did that come before or after Never Winter Nights? I can't remember. I think it was before. Uh, it's, it's weird. Um, I remember we did a draft of, of KOTOR, which was uh, uh, really light on the words. Because remember, uh, the sheer expense of, of Baldur's Gate 2 made everybody kind of nervous. So suddenly it was like, okay, let's write something with as few words as possible. We did this entire draft of Knights of the Old Republic that 
had you know very little writing in it and then we thought oh that sucks we rewrote it and uh just like t- t- <laughs> throughout the entire thing and started over and and, and uh i think uh we did knights of the old republic in between those two takes so for me it's it's this weird did i do it first or later i can't remember but um i remember when we eventually sat down to do knights of the old republic um i worked on was it, what a uh karth karthanasi and, and bash so sort of the two main characters and Jolie Bindo and and yeah HK forty seven that was um, uh, I, I ended up finishing Jolie a little early and uh, HK forty seven was originally supposed to be like T three M four he was supposed to be just a a named like a silent companion who just went beep beep boop boop and made noises and uh, I think for him it was going to be the sort of the evil uh, you know how how some of the droids in in Star Wars do you hear them they they're like rrr, 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 yeah kind of made noises like that that was the plan. And uh, he wasn't going to have any actual dialogue. And since I had like a week to spare, um, James told, told me, uh, said, well, why don't you go ahead and write something for him? And uh, I was like, oh, God, I, I, I didn't really have a plan. So I'd, uh, he just said, well, just just do something interesting. So <laughs> I, I sat down and, and um, I remember uh, just I, I, <laughs> I, was, I was at home and, and um, I... I I don't know if Americans would understand this reference. There was this TV show called The Littlest Hobo oh, yeah. had, uh, about this uh, dog that would go from owner to owner and, and help them before moving on, right? So I just thought, oh, what if he was like the anti-Littlest Hobo and he went from owner to owner, <laughs> helping them engineer their own self-destruction before moving on? And, that is so awesome. <laughs> yeah, so I just I just thought, well, that's kind of cool. And, and he'll call everyone Meatbag and that, that it done. Um, I think it was actually the the, the, the voice actor who did a, a grand job because I finished it. I didn't actually think that much of it, and then we came back with the the, the recording on it. And the the guy who they got to do it did such a phenomenal job. It just uh, took took what I had written and kind of transformed it. I think so. That's fantastic. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and then from there, it was Never Winter Nights as well that you worked on, and right. that was the first one that you were lead writer on. So, uh, no, no, no. I wasn't. I would, wasn't a lead on a writing project until um, one of the Never Winter Nights expansions. Okay, gotcha. Words of the Underdark. Words of the Underdark was the first time uh, when I was when I was uh, uh, in a lead position. Well, I mean, uh, frankly, we didn't really have lead writers until. Did we have a lead? I think during Knights of the Old Republic, we uh, we decided we needed a, a lead because uh, I think uh, Drew Perpition. Um, became the lead at some point during uh, KOTOR. But yeah, um, uh, Never Tonight's uh, was still, like it was technically before KOTOR, so I don't think we had a lead on that. Uh, and then uh, Hordes came afterwards, and that was the, the, the first time I got to sit down and, and, uh, and was in that position. I still actually have my discs. I'm guessing the guys do as well. I still have my Neverwinter oh, Nights yeah. disc, my KOTOR <laughs> disc. I still have my, uh, hell, my Baldur's Gate 2 discs. I still have them. I just, wow. reinstall, I just reinstalled Baldur's Gate 2 <laughs> like a week ago. Yeah. They're so. actually, uh, I think they're updating. Uh, 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 yeah. Trent, is, uh, uh, he used to work here, um, is putting out the Baldur's Gate Enhanced Edition, so that, that, I'm looking forward to that. Yeah, that's yeah. Awesome. I get to play it on my iPad too, which is really yeah. makes me happy, so I can sit at work and, you know, recapture some of my childhood. And work. Yeah. No. <laughs> Only you have to work yes. at your job, Vince. Yeah, I noticed. <laughs> and then, of course, from there is the big one, and that was Dragon Age, and yes. that pretty much cemented your image in a lot of people's minds, um, in terms of 
of when they think of you, they think of that IP. When they think of that IP, they think of you, kind of thing. Um, well, it, good because that was a lot of my life. Yeah, well, no kidding. And and see, <laughs> it's 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 very. I don't want to say rare, but when you think of typically the game, you think of the game company. However, in this case here. I know that for us and a lot of other people, again, when we think of Dragon Age, it's you that we think of. Now, th some of that has to do as well because oh. of the work that you did with the novels as well, and then with the the, uh, the comic book series as well. Um, and then, well, that's all right, I guess. I mean, uh, uh, I have a big team that works with me, right? So I hate for people oh, yeah, to of think that I'm that I'm responsible for for Dragon Age Origins. I mean, uh, we had more than a hundred people working on that, so yeah, uh, I'm far from. And it's weird. There's, I know uh, because I have such a big public face. I mean, I'm on the forums a lot, and a lot of people they they just see my name and they assume I am Bioware, which is a little weird sometimes. But um, no, there's a there's a whole team uh, behind me, including a writing team. I, I uh, on Origins, I had um, I think a total well at various times, probably between five and six other writers working with me, and uh, probably many of those same people are still here. Now, because of how much work you've put into it, too, there's something that you mentioned in that, that fantastic interview with Felicia Day, how you were saying that, like, you'd be working at the office on it and then working on the novel at home kind of thing and feeling oh, yourself yeah. getting burnt out on it. Are you feeling the same amount of love for the IP now and your involvement in it, or are you thinking that there's going to come a time where either it's going to come to an end or you're going to pass the reins off to somebody else? Oh, I don't know. I mean, at some point, uh, um, you kind of... Feel like you, you can only, you can only work on something for so long. Yeah. Eventually, you want somebody else to come on with new ideas. But uh, when that'll happen, I oh God, I have no idea. I still have plenty of ideas for it and, and lots of love for it. As a matter of fact, uh, I wouldn't want to burn myself out on on uh, working on too many extracurricular activities just just so that I don't burn out. You know what I mean? Yeah. All the ideas you have planned for, like the IP or just what we have rolling around in your head, is it mm -hmm. something we're going to see extend past the next game, like novels or me even further into the series? Or is it something that we're going to kind of see start to taper off a little bit? Um, insofar as, as uh, well, let's see, we, how do I explain this? We have the plan, you know, capital P. Right. Um, and now sometimes that plan goes awry, as all plans do, when, as soon as you contact the enemy, right? But there, there is a, a, an overall plan as to what the story of Dragon Age is. Um, and, you know, ideally, we'll get to impart that in full to the audience. Um, and and uh, how that, that gets imparted, uh, there, there are comic books. Uh, there's, a, there's a second series that I, that I know that they've already announced, which is lots of fun. Uh, there's the novels. And now I don't need to be the only person writing novels. but uh, And then, of course, the games and such. And whatever is happening, it's always a, a process where uh, the writing team is sitting down with uh, any anyone who's working on those sorts of things. Like even if they did have an, uh, somebody else doing the writing, if it if it wasn't uh, a writer who's actually on the team, which really would be my preference, uh, we we would be sitting down and making sure that uh, whatever is happening fits into that over, that overall plan in some way. So that we're all we're all leading up to something, right? It's not just a a series of, of side tales that are loosely strung together and don't go anywhere. I mean, uh, I mean, I, who knows? I mean, uh, if 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 things go far enough awry, that that's always a possibility. But I mean, ideally, uh, uh, this this should all lead to some sort of culmination. And what happens after that? Well, that's that's in the land of the theoretical, right? 
So nice. then, like, are you finding that, like, the work that you're doing with the novels and all that, do you find that what that's doing is creating a lot more um, opportunities for you to incorporate what you're doing in the novels in the books, or, sorry, in the games, or do you find that it's just creating a lot more work for you in order to balance the game for anybody, say, who hasn't read the, the novels? Well, I think the, the the games are informing the novels more than the novels informing the games. I mean, that's uh, partly out of necessity. I mean, the, your audience for uh, a novel is is you know much 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 smaller. You're talking about a a, a tiny subsection of the overall uh, game playing audience. So we couldn't have uh, something that appeared in a novel would be you know so, suddenly you have characters that from a novel that that uh, uh, appeared in the game except except. Uh, if you did that, you'd have to introduce them in such a way that somebody who, who didn't read the novel would still, they'd, they'd be newly introduced effectively, right? Uh, so if you're looking at something like a novel, what, what is ideally happening there is that it's adding to the experience of the game. So if you played the game, you could pick up the novel and it would give you uh, more context and, and you get more out of it, right? I think that that is the, the perfect situation. If, uh, if I can... If I play the game and I think I think it's great, then I can pick up a, a novel, and it makes my experience of the game better, and makes my enjoyment of the, the novel better. Then I think that's what times should do. Yeah, see, that's especially what I found with the Stolen Throne, how it tied so well into the game afterwards, and uh, and so it gave you that much more enjoyment, especially like for the the DLC, of course. And all of a sudden, that DLC went from being just a few uh, an, an armor set to it's like this is phenomenal. This is I know where this came from. I I I get why it looks like that. All of that. So it had that much more of an impact on something that otherwise wouldn't been as big a deal yeah you know, that, that was just uh, uh the people working on the dlc were, were sitting down and we were just talking about it and, and and they were like well has there ever you know they weren't asking about the novel specifically but they were asking like are there any other you know anything that any armor or, or, or weapons or whatever that's been mentioned elsewhere that that we could use and so i threw them out a few suggestions and i just kind of leapt on that so that, those are always fun little 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 things that you can throw in and, and we knew very well that somebody who got that who hadn't read the novels would wouldn't, you know, wouldn't mean anything to them but it doesn't need to right uh, uh, like i said ideally these things are feeding off of each other so that if you know if somebody does read everything does experience everything they're they're, they're getting the most of the, out of the experience over uh, in the Mass Effect office with your coworkers, they caused a bit of a stir in the gaming community uh, when they announced that Mass Effect 3 would have the story mode, where you could skip a lot of the combat scenes and just focus on the actual story. Do you see a point where you could release a game where the story is the entire game, even without that combat aspect? I mean, with today's graphical capabilities and the increased quality in voice acting and writing, could there actually be a market for a AAA quality visual novel, really? Um, I guess. Uh, I mean, I don't know that, that we would we would be the people to make that. I, I don't know. It's a, it's, a, it's a difficult question. I mean, as far as I'm concerned, part of a game is... is is encountering challenges, right? Um, I guess a, a, a visual novel could work, but I don't know if that's that's a game at that point. I um, think so. I think I so. Think as long as you've got, you're making choices yeah, throughout. Yeah, like choices. I guess it's sort of like a choose your own adventure kind of kind of kind of game, game at that point. Sure. Um, oh, I don't know. I mean, uh, uh, it's it's easy to say that that uh, that wouldn't work. 
more than it would work, but uh, that, that sort of remains to be seen. I think the the, the difficulty there would be uh, people can make all sorts of pronouncements, right? And I'm sure there's there's at least two dozen people on the internet right now who believe they have the answer to that. But the truth is, there's there's all sorts of assumptions that get made about the industry or what the audience wants. Uh, both, you know, the, the industry makes those assumptions as well as as the the member, members of uh, the various audiences themselves uh, that are always true until they're not. Until someone comes along, does it right, and suddenly changes everything because uh, they've done it right. They've, they've proven that there's an audience for whatever it is. And now everybody else who wants to grab a piece of that audience is, is doing the same thing, right? Well, see, that can apply very directly to what you guys have done with Companions. Because prior to you guys, yes, there were some games with Companions, but it was nowhere near what Bioware then brought to the table and now all of a sudden companions is a very real viable um tool that you can use in a game to both progress the story uh character arcs you name it and so using that argument your company's already done that has already proven that they can take a concept and run with it and show people what they can do with that can do but uh do they want to it's, it's hard to say. Uh, we, we do companions in a way that other people don't. Um, I mean, actually, I should say, not a lot of people do. There's a few. Uh, I, Obsidian uh, uh, has done a, a good job with some of its companions. Absolutely. Black Alley used to until they shut down. I don't know that there's a lot of others. I guess the, the, the real issue is there is that uh, it's quite expensive. Uh, RPGs themselves are, are, in terms of the amount of content that's acquired for them, are huge investments right off the bat. And to add to that, uh, the, the amount of, uh, of translation and, and writing that needs to be done in an industry where writing is not much of a focus for many companies. So a lot of companies, uh, it's very rare for a company to have full-time writers on staff. Generally, you're talking about uh, writing being done by people who are also performing other jobs, like programmers or designers, or they're bringing in uh, um, writers from outside the company, outsourcing bringing them in sometimes sometimes after the game is essentially done and saying, here, write a story on this. So it's rare to have a company that, that considers a story to be uh, a main pillar. Um, and yeah, it's, it's, it's worked out quite well for, for Bioware. We, uh, we get a lot, of, uh, a lot of attention and a lot of uh, kudos for that. Yeah. Uh, okay, so let's ship over, shift to the companions then. And we'll start with obviously the Bioware stuff first and then move on from there. Uh, from like when you were looking at what you'd done with Baldur's Gate 2 and then with KOTOR and Neverwinter Nights and then of course uh, Mass Effect was was out at the time as well before you put out Dragon Age. Was there a lot of importance that was put on you and the rest of the writing team to make sure that you are incorporating companions and especially romanceable companions as an integral part of Origins? Um... Hmm. Yeah, uh, I would say yes, um, but that's that's been sort of an ongoing thing since since Baldur's Gate time, right? I mean, Baldur's Gate one had companions, and really, it's an evolution of uh, how the companions are done since that time. I mean, uh, romances is something we we tried out and added in Baldur's Gate two, and that got a good reaction. So, in every every game that follows, we're sort of looking at okay, um, having a party is uh, is is part of the fundamental design. So. What do we do with the party? And it's sort of an evolving 
our, our writing. So how are we doing their story? How are we doing their romances? How can we improve? What did we do wrong last time? There's always stuff we did wrong. There's, ne there's never been perfection, right? So uh, it's, it's really just an ongoing process. So by the time we got to Origins, of course, we'd had Neverwinter Nights and, and, and uh, KOTOR and, and Baller's Gate before that. So it's like, well, how do we want to do party members in this game? And, and, uh, and for Origins, at least, it was, it was just, let's add a Let's just throw as much text at it as we, as we possibly can <laughs> with our cinematic budget and, and see how that goes. So um, it seemed to work out okay. Oh, of course, yeah. And do you find that with such a strong emphasis, too, on romanceable companions, that as a writer, you're able to toy with your gamer's emotions that much more than you could otherwise? <laughs> uh, yes. <laughs> That's all that needed. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, uh, uh, romances are, are it's, it's sort of Pandora's box in a way, you know, uh, uh, that, that once you open that up, there's all sorts of, uh, it's, it's not just content. Uh, there are uh, things that, get, that uh, you're saying by including romances that, that bring into questions of uh, um, what you're saying about sexuality, whether it's okay, what's okay, what what we think uh, we want um, uh, our players to experience, um, and, and you, you do that by omission or by inclusion, and uh, it becomes a, a bit of a headache. But uh, I think we, we sort of keep tackling that just because uh, it's a worthwhile. It, it it does add to the game. I mean, uh, not everybody uh, wants romances, but. Uh, for a lot of people, that's that's a big part of what they enjoy in the game, and, and, and uh, you're right. It it does it does add to our, our ability to to sort of rein players in. Every every player that that enjoys one of our games finds something to sort of latch on to that that is most meaningful to them, and so that the this is just one of those tools that we can use, right? That to get sometimes for some players, the romance is the game, and it's more important than. Uh, the, the goal of, of the, the overarching quest or what have you. What's more impo most important is how do they become Queen of Ferelden or, you know, uh, there, there are lots of, of things we can use to, to get players uh, invested, emotionally invested in the outcome. And uh, romance is, is, a, is, is something that uh, uh, is, a, is a big tool in our box, yes. Well, it, what happens too is that because you've become emotionally invested, like you said, with a specific character, then it's not that their storyline is more important than the main story arc, per se, so much so that you are so much more invested on a, an emotional level that is more powerful than what you will get from your main story arc. Of course, any kind of emotion that has you feeling something for a character, and these are freaking digital characters, okay? And when you're feeling something for this person, of course, when there is a lot of depth and emotion in that, that story arc, however small it is in comparison to the other one, it's going to hit you that much harder. Right. Um, I mean, we can look at, say, the Morgan story, which for a lot of people had a huge impact in Origins, and I know that it was for me, whereas for Joe it was Liliana. Because we allowed ourselves to get sucked into the game, well, we didn't have any choice, damn it. <laughs> we oh, got yeah, so it was right down the rabbit hole yeah. on that one. <laughs> we got so sucked in that the, the, the impacts of those small quest lines with your companion that you care about overwhelmed everything else. Yeah, it can do that. I mean, uh, 
Sometimes there has been there have been conversations over whether that's a good thing or not. I mean, uh, on one hand, you have emotional investment. On the other, would it be better to have uh, romances like to have less so they're they they have greater impact to restrict it to characters that are you know like like the romance is part of the um, the the, the crit- critical plot, right? So if you're looking at something like uh, say Knights of the Republic. Um, Bastila is an example of a romance that was tied into the to the actual central plot, right? Um, so there are, there are conversations to have over how that's done, but yes, ultimately, I think the the emotional investment wins out. When designing the companions in the game worlds, do they tend to take on a life of their own and sort of write themselves after you've come up with them, or are they creations that are sort of like fully born, like just all grown up? Um, we have to plan a lot uh, initially, and a lot of it is uh, like I, I have my my writing team, and mostly it's uh, it's when we were talking about uh, we're, when we're first putting together the companions, we we start with concepts, right? And and we're not doing it just ourselves. We have uh, concept artists who come in who, who we talk to, and sometimes you know um, a, a piece of concept art can inform a character as much as a writer can. So we'll be we'll be uh, uh, talking about back and forth. We also have to talk with. Um, uh, the gameplay team, because you know, uh, part of it is okay. We need a we need a certain array of, of classes in, in the in the party, so we can't just make the characters we want. We have to make characters who, okay, we have X number of rogues, X number of warriors, uh, and, and there there are there are sort of functions that everybody has to, to to fill. So that can also inform what kind of characters we make. But uh, when we start, when we get down to the point where we know what we what we want. Like so, I. I have a, a, a mage I have to make, and uh, we, we we assign that character to a particular writer, and then it's down to the writers like, okay, what what kind of story do I want to tell? What what uh, how is this character going to serve in the in the overall plot? Right? Is is uh, what um, viewpoint do they express? Because um, you sort of want companions to take on a piece of the world or a piece of the plot. Uh, because that makes it easier for for players to wrap their head around that particular concept. It's a, a, a notion of of a, a nation. Like if you're if you're if you're showing a a setting, you know, we can talk all we want about uh, you know the dwarven nation or conflicts like between the mages and templars. Um, those are are uh, difficult for players to wrap their heads around, and sometimes a little easier for them to to. Uh, to, for, to experience it through a follower, a follower becomes a cipher in, in that respect, in that uh, they they represent that. I mean, uh, not to the player necessarily. The player shouldn't. I mean, when it's done well, the player shouldn't realize that's what their purpose is. But uh, uh, to to the writers, that's often what they will represent. So there's this process we go we go from where we start with uh, a whole bunch of concepts and requirements that are sort of mushed together, and then. Uh, um, Formulating from that sort of a, a character plan, and then we'll talk about it as a group. And in the in the in slowly, what happens is is uh, uh, between what the writer wants to do and what the other writers want to do with their characters, and we'll talk about how they interact and how they interact with the player and the plots. Um, by the time we're generally by the time we actually start writing them, they have become fully formed. Um, and then there, there'll be a little bit of tweaking as, as you start writing, because sometimes, you know, again, best laid plans go awry upon contact <laughs> yeah. with the enemy. Of course. Yeah, so suddenly this character, you thought, oh, they're totally going to be like this. And as you start writing them, they just 
decide they're going to be different, right? And you, you can get angry or you can just sort of go with it. And so sometimes characters will just kind of evolve as you're writing them, and that's that's perfectly valid as well. On the topic of the uh, the companions being so opinionated or having their own sort of personalities, one of the coolest things I thought in Dragon Age 2 is where some of the uh, previous companions from Dragon Age 1 made a cameo appearance or made an appearance that had an impact on the story and the companions' reactions that you had at the time to them. Is that something we can expect to see more of moving forward? Like, will we see a little more cross-pollinization like that uh, in Dragon Age 3? Some of those unexpected moments, maybe? I, I think so. I, I think uh, uh, what I'd like to do is have those be more than just cameos, more than them just popping up and saying, hey, remember me? So uh, more like uh, more like Liliana and 2 as opposed to Wynn? Right. Yes. Uh, yeah, I remember uh, Wynn did, a, did an appearance in Awakening, which is pretty much just, just uh, hey, it's me, Wynn. And uh, uh, I'd like the, for there to be, as, you, as we go forward, for there to be pieces that, that you recognize, anyone who's a fan of the series can can see those familiar faces. I mean, not take it to the extent where you're like, wow, it was the entire cast just transplanted halfway across the world. But <laughs> right. um, that there are things in there that are recognizably Dragon Age, not just in terms of the, the setting, but in terms of the characters. You need uh, a continuity, right? A, a, a certain person, you know, there's a, there's a whole formula. You can break it down if you want to get cynical about it. But uh, there is, uh, in terms of... Uh, uh, how to maintain an ongoing IP, for instance. There's a, a theory of, of thought as to you must have sort of a certain percentage uh, that is recognizable and, and, and sort of uh, reinforces continuity and then a certain percentage that is new. Of course, this is all assuming your player wasn't a complete bastard and murdered half the characters <laughs> along the way. Yeah. Well, sometimes it doesn't so well. I mean, we're, we're having having some discussions over over Liliana, which were which were kind of uh, in a way amusing and, and in a way you know I totally get where they're where they're where they're coming from. Some of the fans were a little upset at the idea that Liliana would come back even if she died, right? Which you know what uh, uh, I get what what they're saying, but uh, uh, there, there there's all, there's a certain point too, which 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 uh, uh, we need to continue the plot forward, uh, and sometimes it's going to go in places that that. Uh, a player no, may not have expected when they made that decision. And then they say, but you get to decide that? Yes. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Who's the boss? I'm the boss. <laughs> well, I, I don't know if I would put it quite that way. Uh, you're the writers. And, and, and I mean, uh, you know, and, and the reason I understand what they're saying is that you, you, you can't just sort of ignore everything. You need you need decisions that that are definitely uh, uh, sacrosanct, like like they inform uh, the, the setting as a whole. Like uh, I would say, one of those would be uh, the dark ritual in Dragon Age Origins. We couldn't turn around and just yeah yeah no we'll, we'll just hand wave that. that. That's not a that's not a good idea. Um, but I mean that doesn't mean that every single decision is going to work out. You know that you can you can picture ahead of time. Well, it should have this effect. That's not. Do you see it as possible to have a companion character who is fully or even partially their development uh, under the control of the player, almost to the point with uh, the actual main character in the games? Like, Dragon Age 2 started things with, like, the friend and rival relationship, or you even mentioned in, like, Obsidian uh, KOTOR 2, you could influence the dark side or the light side. Like, playing through Old Republic on my Inquisitor, I would have loved to have been able to corrupt my uh, my Padawan a little more than <laughs> did naturally happened in the storyline. So I understand there's probably some limitations on that, obviously. So you think maybe a game with less companions but more variables to them would work? 
Uh, possibly. I mean, um, for me, I think it depends on, on the character. If you had every party member that you could just mold, like, like you know, so they, they've known you for, you know, X number of months, and you go in, you know, they have some major life crises, and just because you're there, so you should do this. And they're like, yes, you're right, I agree with you. Uh, and suddenly they change their entire viewpoint. That would be a little unrealistic, but I mean, um, in select circumstances, I think I think it's really gratifying. Um, if you had less companions with more variants, yeah, because I mean, part of part of the limitation is, of course, uh, uh, a practical limitation, right? I mean, uh, uh, I know I know that uh, uh, from a fan's perspective, what difference does it make how many words there are, and, or how much a game costs to make? I mean, and, and that that is cool. I mean, uh, uh, they don't need to concern themselves with things like budgets and, and such, but what well, we do, um, and so we do have to, to think about okay, uh, how much breadth can we give a particular companion? How can we how can we give the most depth? You know, get the most bang for our buck with with whatever we've got to work with, right? And and sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't, and you learn and you move on. So um, could you do more with less? But yes, but remember, uh, um, you're also always sacrificing something. No matter which decision you make when it comes to resources, you're sacrificing something. So you could do fewer companions and have greater breadth for each companion, but that at the same time, uh, you're sacrificing uh, a variety. Uh, suddenly you're, you're saying, okay, you have four companions total. That's all you have to choose from. Or three, like you, you have a set party and you never get to choose anyone else. Well, you're putting, a, from a, a game design perspective, you're putting a lot of eggs into one basket, right? You will like these particular companions and, and there's no other choice other than these people. That can work great. That's not going to work equally well for everyone, but that, that's generally the case, isn't it? Interesting. There's always some people that get left out. And that in this case, it'd be, there'd be, there would be, I'm, I'm sure we would have, again, two dozen people who would immediately storm onto our farms and say, no, no, uh, the, the RPGs are all about how many companions I, I get to choose between. <laughs> and, and a reminder that, that, you know, like most RPGs don't even have companions. But uh, sure, uh, what they're saying is that for, for the kind of RPGs we make, what they find most important is having a variety of companions to choose from, possibly because they like playing the game multiple times. And for them, uh, being able to play the game multiple times with the same companions, even if they could be altered more uh, in each each playthrough, wouldn't be as worthwhile. And so that's 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 completely valid. Yeah, perfectly understandable. Yeah. And I'm glad you mentioned uh, how well the Bastila romance wove into the actual storyline in Knights of the Republic, because I would actually like to see a, a little more of that, where the romances and even the non-romantic companion interactions are a little more organic with the gameplay. We've seen a lot of that evolving over time with your party members interjecting into your conversations and reacting to your decisions. Do you see the the design progressing to a point where we can kind of get away from the whole camp or ship hub where okay you do a quest let's go talk to everybody and then go do another quest where it just it just flows in with the actual story hmm. well I mean uh, part of that it, it depends on uh, whether or not you have the companions actually with you right I mean uh, if you're going to write uh, an ongoing um, arc with a follower uh, you have to know where they are and you don't, if, if it's possible for them to not be in the party, suddenly you've got to account for that possibility that they're not in the party. That's, that's where the hub thing comes from. You need a, a place for those companions to be. I mean, in DA2, um, we actually separated them from the hub. And I don't know how well that worked out. I mean, there were practical limitations, you know, uh, having to go around to, to other parts of the city and having a, a, 
a loading screen in each, between each one maybe wasn't the best idea. I don't know. It's it seemed uh, from a from a, a theoretical standpoint that them having lives of their own was was uh, it was worth trying. I just don't know that it worked very well in a, in a practical standpoint. Uh, so the yeah the, the 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 hub sort of design comes from having more companions than you can have in the party, and trying to write um, in a way where here's the place where you interact with them. Why? Well, because cinematics, uh, at least with the way we do them, requires staging. So you need, uh, when you have a set stage, you need, uh, um, it, sorry, in a, having a set stage makes cinematics possible because you need to control the camera. If you allow for a conversation to happen anywhere, you cannot, you, you have, would have to have like a set camera or um, you wouldn't have the ability to do cinematics because your camera, you could end up with a camera in the, in the middle of a wall, or, or suddenly you're having a conversation with Laliana where you know her entire face is covered by a tree. You, you have to be careful of how how you're presenting them, right? Like some some people wouldn't mind. I imagine there's lots of people who are like, no, that the the, the benefit of having conversations anywhere totally outweighs the the, the fact that Laliana might be standing inside a tree. Um, <laughs> a lot of people would would think that that was very sloppy, right? And they would blame it on, on our our inability to to work around that somehow. So, uh, so part well, part of it is in a presentation as to how much control do we need over how the, that dialogue is presented, and uh, part of it is just convenience. So, you uh, know, that 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 means that the hub, for at least right now, with uh, the our ability to do things with the engine, probably isn't going to go away anytime soon. Not unless. Um, we reduced uh, the number of companions. So, like I said, uh, we talked about mentioned it earlier. Like, say you just have three companions, so you always have the same companions. So then I know they were always in your party, and I could have them react in the moment. There's also uh, um, uh, having it so that uh, certain important things only happen if the, that party member is in your party, so they can they can uh, act or sorry react uh, during the course of the plot. And we had some of that, um, but then you you probably get the, um, a different kind of reaction because some players like to get to know all their party members uh, and don't uh, would look on it as a limitation as in well I can only get to know people really well if I take them with me and while that makes a, a certain amount of, of uh, 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 hypothetical sense in, in terms of that that makes sense from a if you're, if you're thinking about it well naturally if I if I spend more time with them in the party uh, I should get to know them better yes uh, but from a, a game design perspective, as to what a, um, a player is trying to get out of their game, that might not work as well. I mean, there is no perfect answer, right? Uh, I think, like I, what I'm trying to say is, is that um, you're always giving up one thing to do something else. So you're never going to have the the answer that uh, just um, will fit for everyone. So you're you're trying to to go with well, what feels the best. For, for what we're trying to do, and in this case, it's like uh, uh, our followers are such a big big part of the game. We want to make sure that players have the possibility to experience as much of them as possible. And uh, even though uh, uh, our party size might be limited to taking three people with you, um, we, we do. If we have more, we want to give as many people as possible the ability to to to, to, to talk to them and to interact with them to get to get access to that content. Not necessarily have access to all content. I think that that's the the rub to linearity, right? Um, exclusive content based on your decisions, having, you know, something's happening based on your decisions, having, having followers uh, leave, uh, having followers turn against you or become your best friends or romances, those are, those are, those are um, uh, past, those are, those are, those are, 
it's valid uh, reactivity to your choices just as much as uh, the decisions you make in plots, as far as I'm concerned. All right, so one last hypothetical to throw out there, if you will. In sure. a lot of the romances, you can progress through several romances at the start, but you're always forced to pick one after you reach a certain point. Now, mm -hmm. especially in Bioware games, I love to do a playthrough where I screw over my character as much as possible. So <laughs> I, I would bad, actually bad like... bad man. I know. <laughs> I would is, actually like, really is. like to see an option to proceed down more than one romantic path at a time. Sure, that wouldn't be a heroic a option, option, but it could lead to some interesting consequences for the player down the line. Would that be something you'd think about? Uh, uh, two answers there. I mean, I mean, we have done that. I mean, yes, you're right. At some point, we always uh, uh, make sure that there's only one. Um, the, the, the real issue is one of, of A, of realism. I mean, uh, it seems like at some point, if, if you have a harem going, your harem should be aware that the harem exists. Uh, and what do you do at that point? And it, that, that, that's the other side. There's realism, but the other side is, is uh, how much writing can we do? How much reactivity to that? Uh, we tend to narrow down the, the, the romances just because um, there is a point at which as soon as, as uh, you start to have reactivity, especially when, let's say, you have uh, uh, four romances and... and, and uh, like an origins, four romances, two bisexual. Uh, the number of of um, situations, like when you're looking at uh, how this character must react to the other romances. Wow, it sort of grows exponentially, and it's how how far can you can you keep that going, right? Um, so I, I I could see it. Um, there are some interesting things to to uh, to explore. Uh, letting the player uh, create a harem, whether or not the the, the, the people. Uh, Involved, the romance is involved, or where you're doing that, or accepting of it. I don't know. Uh, having uh, you cheat on followers, or they them cheat on you. Those are those are interesting issues that we could explore. Um, of course, you have to at, at some point you have to sort of look at that and say, well, okay, is that an interesting story, or and is that something that players would want in their game? Because those are sometimes two separate things. Like. Not everything which would, which would appeal to me as a writer is necessarily what somebody needs to experience in a game. Like, not, I wouldn't go with the other side of that and say, well, everything must be escapist fantasy and everything's there just to, just to massage the player's ego. No, I, I'm not all about that. I'm perfectly willing to, to stab the player in the gut and, and laugh. Um, but uh, uh, the difference is, 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 it, is, it, is it, am I stabbing them to gratify them? Or am I stabbing them to gratify myself? That is the difference. Vince just wants to bang around. That's all he cares about. <laughs> just a banging, a banging, a banging all night long. That's all he cares about. Well, maybe, maybe that goes, you know. Although, you know what? Goes to massaging the player's ego. I don't know. I will say this, though. When you're talking about, like, the how the companions deal with you banging around, I know that my male elf in the first one in Origins he was romancing Morgan of course but he was kind of flirting it up with Leliana but he nails Zevran I figure you know what they're, they're freaking elves anything anything goes with elves uh, and, is, that, is that the it's not gay if it's an elf argument I don't, I don't care and so uh, 
But what I loved was the reaction I got from the companions once, because Zev can't keep his mouth shut. Right. Good night, everybody. And, uh, <laughs> and so oh. be- because of that, it was the reactions that I got from the other companions that were just hysterical because you get, like, especially Leliana, there's that, that little bit of discomfort. And, and Morgan was like, a care less, really. And I love that. I think uh, uh, the ideal situation is you'd let the player make a decision and then react to it rather than uh, prevent the decision to just to avoid complication. Um, that's always going to be a juggling act, whether or not you can actually accommodate that. But yes, ideally, uh, let them go ahead and make the decision and then react, even though that reaction may be, and suddenly all romance is over because everyone thinks you're a cad. But I mean... Uh, um, uh, yeah, no, I agree. Uh, uh, letting the player go ahead and, and uh, do something like that, and then and then and then they get to see what the fallout is. I think that that's part of that sort of visceral pleasure that somebody playing an RPG that they take from making those decisions, right? And well, it's but it, consequences. It's a little bit of a loaded gun as well, because if you let them make a decision and it turns out not to be satisfying in, in its repercussion, that can almost be worse than not allowing them to make the decision in, in the first place. Screw them! Screw them! Consequences to your actions. That's what I say. Okay, let's talk about some of the characters from from Dragon Age and talk about some of what like our favorite times and and uh, and what we enjoyed. Now, for myself, like I said, I did romance uh, Morgan for the most part, and for me, that was the highlight of Origin. I, I found that she was a very complex character who really made you think differently about what is you know quote unquote good and honorable in a game in terms of how you're you're playing the choices that you're making and all that I mean especially right up to leading to the the, the death of her mother and her asking you to kill her mother I, I'm assuming that was a lot of fun for you to write um oh, define fun um oh <laughs> <laughs> not boring it's, it's it's interesting because uh, some, I've, I've, I've had this question before uh, something like it which was uh, is it fun and it's 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 interesting from our perspective because it, uh, I wouldn't call it fun. Um, we don't get fun out of what we do as much as uh, we get grat- we get um, gratification. We get, it's 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 satisfaction that we're looking for, right? That that we've we've put together something that that worked very well because that doesn't always happen. Uh, in the case of Morgan, um, there was a lot of pain in uh, the creation. She went through a lot of iterations. Um, Morgan evolved uh, significantly. Like sometimes you'll you'll start making something and it's just not working out. So if you have time, hopefully, you you start you look at okay, what is the problem here? You retool it. So there there was a lot of pain in, in putting that together, but once it was all done, um, and it looks like that's what we intended from the very beginning, and we look brilliant for having made it. Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> See, for um, me, when I'm writing something, I find that if a, if a character develops that is that kind of that stands so far away from the norm and that is so deep in everything else, I do find it fun. I find that it's a blast to write either as that character or about that character because it takes you out of your comfort zone. You know what I mean? And in that regard, it is, it's challenging and it's fun. Yeah, no, I, I, I can see that. I mean, uh, I think the best characters are ones that can make you change your mind. Uh, I mean, uh, I love uh, a character like uh, Isabella in DA2 that, you could look at and, and sort of judge them on the surface and, and leave it at that. 
But if you actually got to know them, they might change your mind about who, not only who they are, but change your mind about other things, right? And, and uh, uh, it's those characters that, that you, you get emotionally invested in, and then suddenly they're challenging your perceptions. I think, to me, that's, that's what I find most satisfying or uh, fun, I guess, depending on how you want <laughs> yeah. to. Okay, Joe, what about you? My favorite moment, uh, honestly, is it's a little tiny quip. And it was in the Deep Roads in the first game where I have Shale and Wynn with me and I'm slaughtering Darkspawn and trying to make my way through it. And then Shale just like starts asking womanly questions of Wynn. And I just lost my stuff. Like I just sat there like I actually like stopped moving subject and things like, did that actually just happen? And then like it happened again and like there was all these questions. And it was just such a, a really awesome deep little insight into the character. And it wasn't even just... It wasn't like a quest. It wasn't anything that was like, I'm actively seeking this out. It was just something that happened. And I thought that was one of the coolest moments between companions that I've ever had in any game. <laughs> That's probably banter. I don't think it's actually meant to happen in, in combat, but I think uh, if it gets initiated uh, or triggered at some point uh, uh, before the combat begins, it, you will, it will happen. Yeah. And you'll have people running around fighting. And, mm -hmm. and here you got Morgan and Alistair exchanging uh, uh, quips as you're fighting, which is, is sometimes... It seems appropriate, at a, maybe at a certain level, like, okay, more Darkspawn, we'll fight, and we'll just sort of discuss, uh, you know, uh, mutual hygiene uh, while, while we're fighting, and that seems somehow, <laughs> somehow oddly appropriate. You know um, what, it was like Spider-Man banter, <laughs> yeah, when he's in a fight that. and they're ba bantering back and forth, that's what it was like at times, which just made it feel that much more heroic, actually. Having an entire speech ballooning between each, yes. each, each punch, right? <laughs> Vince, what about you? All right, I I love me some dwarves, and Ogren was my boy throughout the entire of Dragon Age. But oh, I I absolutely loved Shale, and it kind of filled that little <laughs> HK forty seven spot uh, of the way she looked at you know the people around her, and you know oh did I step on him and you know, things like that, and it all led to that quest with the anvil, and oh, that was God. huge Man, moment yeah. for Shale. And of right. course, being the psychopath that I am, <laughs> I enslaved the golem. You bastard. <laughs> That's, you're a terrible person. He really is. The yeah. safe really Ask him is about Morden. That stake. How many times can I explain this to you guys? Uh, Shale was, uh, was kind of neat how that came about. It was uh, actually a rewrite of the character. I think the first version we decided just wasn't working. So I, I, got, I got thrown Shale. I guess sort of in the same way that I got thrown HK twenty seven, which is, uh, let's see what you can do. And I remember uh, I was in a new office at the point, but this was one that um, had a, a window that overlooked the, the 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 roof of the the neighboring portion of the building, um, where all the HVAC units were, and that's where the pigeons always came to have sex right in front of my window, <laughs> and it just filled me with such loathing. Um, God, I just every time I look out the window and there'd be two pigeons having sex, I'd be like, "Oh God, like flying rats! I hate them so much." Um, and then that—that's uh, just how uh, Shale came to be. <laughs> because of pigeons having sex. <laughs> having sex outside. <laughs> well, and, and uh, they, Bruce, you heard it was, here first, folks. 
there was a, a a window like right like I could see it from uh, my window. There was a, a an outcropping of the building that, where there's a window with a ledge above where the pigeons would all roost. And of course, because they would roost there, it was the the the, the wall was coated with pigeon crap. And I just, I just couldn't stand to look outside the window because either pigeons were having sex or I had to, to look at the. Look. There's this place where we're, it's like the, 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 these pigeons had turned on ass faucets and just like spread. <laughs> it was, I was filled with horror every single time I looked outside. Which, I was like, that is, is the title of this episode, folks. <laughs> oh, man. what ass faucets? Ass faucets. Yes. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> I don't even know what to say to that, man. Yeah. Okay, what about you, David? I know that when you were talking to Felicia, you were saying that uh, it was especially Alistair that was your favorite from uh, from Origins. Well, uh, you mean my, my favorite character, my favorite moment? Well, seeing as I'm assuming that is, of course, your favorite character, what would have been one of your favorite moments then? Oh, gosh. Oh, on the spot. Uh, I don't know. I don't know. Let's, um, oh, oh. I bet you that would probably be... <laughs> the moment where I ran into uh, uh, Mary and Cheryl's office to tell them that I decided that uh, if Alistair broke up with the player uh, after you the player stole all their Al- shit, sorry, <laughs> you stole all their shit. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. Uh, uh, if you made him king at the landsmeet and you and you were in a romance with him, so this is this is a female player is in a romance with Alistair, makes him king, and he will end the romance because his duty is to to. Uh, to have a, a child, which and he's not going to cheat on one, whoever he marries, so he feels it's his duty. He breaks up with the player, so the player's all kind of well, fun. I will just go to the lance. I will just go to the final battle then, and I will die because you know that just shows him. And I decided that well, if Alistair's still in, he was in love with the player when he broke up with them. He will he will sacrifice himself and die fighting the archdemon to save her. And I, I ran into the office and I told Mary and Cheryl, and we all three of us at the same time just just burst out into evil cackling laugh. <laughs> <laughs> like like three uh, villains you know uh, I, I, in that scenario I was Maleficent and, and, and we laughed loudly enough that people in neighboring offices came to sort of see what we had done <laughs> and we just looked at them as like something very evil yeah. <laughs> I know that and Alistair day, somebody talks about uh, uh uh, their 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 utter rage. There, in fact, is I think I saw someone passed me a link, which was a YouTube video of a, of a, a female fan who had done that and was like like utterly filled with rage and ranting. And, <laughs> and I saw that video and I just smiled. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that, that's why I do this. No kidding. There's the payback. <laughs> so uh, that's maybe been not a game moment, but I guess it's a game creation. Oh, that that counts. <laughs> Uh, for Dragon Age 2, of course, I, I think that the strongest characters were Varric and Isabella um, that stole damn near every scene that they were in, which again <laughs> goes back to what we were talking about earlier, that, that very fine balance of, uh, that you must have to keep an eye on these characters to make sure that they don't overpower, overwhelm the story because they are such strong secondary characters. Well, I don't know. Um, overwhelm the story? That, that's kind of difficult to do because uh, in a way... Uh, if they're a character that the, the character the player really really likes, um, they they actually can have potentially add to the story, right? Um, 
in terms of that emotional investment, some of these followers are really important. We never know what's going to be important to to a, to a player. They might really like their but do they care about him? I mean, they may like, might really like Isabella, or they might have left her at the base, or day two, it was possible to not have recruited her at all, right? So we don't know what players people care about, so we just sort of throw out hooks, potential things that the player can care about. So, I mean, uh, for me, I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing if there are characters that, sure, their uh, comedy characters are often the most loved. I, I still wouldn't want to turn every single party member into a laugh riot of a different kind, because that, eh, that would ultimately break down, sort of, for me, the, 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 the fabric of the game, right? So, the, it's not about the followers. But it, it, then again, it is to some people. But I don't know. I don't know. I, uh, there's, I think there's a balance to be hit. I love the fact that people thought Beric was awesome. Uh, Isabella, uh, Cheryl Chi, one uh, of my writers, uh, wrote Isabella. She did an awesome job. But yeah, just uh, in the middle of, you know, right in the, uh, the you, you walk into, you, you're doing that plot in the, uh, the whorehouse, the brothel, and, and uh, uh, where she finds out that, that one of the, the, the prostitutes was an apostate. And, and uh, I forget where, where that came from. I think uh, it was a joke that got made. Was it Jennifer? Yeah. Oh, okay. It, it was a joke that got made in the writer's pit. And I think it was uh, Jennifer Hepler uh, uh, burst out with a joke. And she said, she said uh, an apostate prostitute? An apostate. And we all started laughing. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, so with some characters that becomes possible. But I mean, uh, other characters are, are well-loved, you know, for, for their own reasons. So they, they all bring something to the table. If a character doesn't bring something, uh, then, it, then it, and it, it isn't remarked upon and it didn't add emotional. Like, uh, I know Fenris is an example of a character that uh, uh, is really disliked by some people and really loved a whole lot by, by other people. And to me, that, that's, that's also successful, right? It, it doesn't matter if, there's a, if everybody loves them. So long as the, the, that they were there and, and they have, it has, that character has people who love that character and to them that character added so much to the game and they don't need to necessarily be, be funny. Uh, as long as there's some kind of uh, emotional response, right? If there are people that loathe Fenris with all their being, that loathe Anders with all their being, that's cool. That, 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 is, yeah, that is just as bad. When I when I say Anders, I say it like Newman. Anders, <laughs> damn it, Anders. Yeah. Joe, what about you? Uh, Da two favorite moment would have to be where Anders returned, like when the whole mage war kind of kicked off, and I wound up siding with the mages, mm-hmm. and Anders came back and was just like, you know what, I'm here to help, and like kind of like stepped up and manned up and was like. Actually, it was instead of like being the cowering, like, oh, you know, I'm just going to go hide over here. He actually stood his ground and did something was one of the most defining moments for that character in that story for me. Awesome. Vince? Uh, the whole quest line uh, with uh, Hawk's mother that oh, when wow. she was kidnapped and everything like that was among the most emotionally invested I've personally been in a in a specific storyline in a game in a number of years. That one was just really, really well done for me. That's a, that's a great example, actually, because, I mean, I, I remember we, there we originally had a version of that plot where you could save the mother, and uh, it was a question, A, of, of whether we could do that well enough, um, and we ended up not being able to. And then, But there was also a question of, of um, whether it's, it's okay... To have quests um, where you see you have two, you have two things there, right? 
if we put in a version where you could save the mother, that bit then become the the I win version. Like like that's when you have quests that have an optimal route, um, it becomes problematic. And they, they really the question was, we, we for a while we were like wanted to do a, a way that you could save the mother, but it, it costs you something very dear, and it just it, sadly we couldn't do that. But but I think uh, where, where we ended up with that plot, it was it was uh, both it was it was interesting because. Um, uh, for the people it worked for, it worked very well for. We had a lot of people who had a very emotional, visceral experience from that plot, and that's awesome. For other people, it didn't work out, and, and some people had a, sort of an adverse, re allergic reaction to it almost, which, which is which is too bad. And I think that uh, uh, for those people, they were looking for some kind of choice, or maybe the game had broken down for them already by that point. I, I don't know, but I, I do I do uh, really enjoy it when the uh, people the people for, for whom it actually did work a lot. Um, that they had a very strong emotional reaction from it, and I think that that was uh, very gratifying to hear about. Okay, so for you, for Dragon Age Two, what was uh, one of the defining moments, or uh, one of your favorite characters? Hmm. <laughs> oh, come on! After I asked you for one, you saw this coming. <laughs> oh, yeah. I try not, I try not to, 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 to think too much because then I lose track of what someone's asking me. <laughs> um, shoot, uh, a defining moment in, in Dragon Age Two. Wow, that probably would have been Aveline's quest where you go to hook her up with her hubby, the, the, the uh, Donic. When you when you go and she she has to uh, to um, <laughs> she, she she's trying to ask Donic out, and, and you have to sort of play matchmaker. Yeah, I mean, I, I thought that was uh, that was just great. Aveline is is, is uh, such a such a great character. Luke did such a good job on that character. I, I always see. I always enjoy. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I always enjoy when other people write more than what I I, I wrote because to me it's I'm making it but I don't enjoy it so when I see one of the writers has taken something and and, and run with it and turned it into something that that's just beautiful I, I always uh, appreciate it so much more because I come along and I sort of see it after the fact I'm like wow you did a really good job with this well, I, I have a harder time appreciating my own work I guess what I loved about that was that it's in the midst of all this insanity that's going on here you have your character sitting in the bar <laughs> having <laughs> drinks with him trying to set him up and it's it was just such this it was like a, a, a again going back to Seinfeld like a Seinfeld episode like a little <laughs> moment of how what the hell's going on here but it worked and it was just very simple and and quirky and uh, and yeah I I love that moment as well yeah not all not all plots need to be about combat and I think I think I always struggle I mean uh, to to try to get to, to have it recognized that their, their combat isn't always a reward in and of itself, that there are other things that players look for from games, and that, that, that there are some things... Like you, you, you can go through an entire plot without combat and still find it rewarding. I mean, I think I remember... Oh, what game was that? Was it Vampire Bloodlines? There was a, an entire plot that took place in a, a sort of a haunted hotel, a ruined hotel that you could go to, an entire plot. There was no dialogue. Uh, there was no combat. And yet it was utterly gratifying. I was thought, good on you, Troika. The, the guys who were behind that particular plot uh, really, really underlined exactly what you can do in an RPG. It doesn't just have to be, you know, kill X number of foes, get X, you know, X number of experience points. That that uh, there are there are very that it's about experiences, right? And that there are many different kinds of experiences. And uh, I mean, you're not always going to succeed in, in doing them as well as you'd like. Um, but I mean, uh, I think. That uh, when you see how other companies, uh, uh, other games, 
or even in our own games, the, the parts of it that worked very well, you, you sort of try to, to up the bar and and, uh, and make it that much better, I guess. Okay. Let's move away from now the games that you've worked on and touch on some of the other games that have come out that have employed companions of different kinds and all that, and 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 just shoot the breeze about that a bit. Like from obviously sure. from from Bioware, we've got Mass Effect, which defined companions as well and uh we've also got of course like we mentioned uh kotor but we also have the old republic that just came out not that long ago now which has done a lot to further progress companions uh especially in terms of of an mmo using companions as well Mm. Um, we've got dragon's dogma that's going to be coming out soon that's putting a whole different spin on it with pawn their pawn system uh going back Again, retro style, we got Planescape Torment. Yeah. Uh, just recently, we have Skyrim as well, which is not quite as much to it, but still is in there. And then we've got things like Twilight Princess used it. Uh, Zelda used it even with Navi back in the day. And then, Vince, you were talking about Final Fantasy stuff as well. Yeah, what I, what I found interesting about Final Fantasy is the way it's progressed over the years, where it started off with just generic blank characters that were the adventure was going on around them. It didn't really involve them personally. And then throughout the series, I started, okay, let's give these people actual character. And you had like the one or two main characters and then their group of companions. And for every one of those type of Final Fantasy games, the companions were always the most popular characters in the game, not the main characters. Nobody actually, cared. Hmm? I actually talk about that in my feature this week. Oh, and then how Square recognized this. So they decided in the more recent games to just do it as a whole cast instead of one main character and a bunch of sub characters. So I just thought it was interesting how their companion evolution has been over the decades now. And yeah, see, we've got a whole other list here, too. Um, I don't know. What are some of the games where in the companions system was something that you thought was very well implemented? Oh, sorry, is that to me? Yeah, I'm going to go with you. Um, <laughs> hmm. I don't care what these numbnuts have to say. <laughs> uh, shoot. Uh, I would say, see, there could be, there's a lot of schools of thought, right? Like, you look at something like uh, like Skyrim. Uh, it's, it's weird, because, I mean, uh, you listen to people react to Skyrim, and, and, and uh, they talk about, you know, X character that they had, a, a, they married, and, and and had like this emotional, visceral response to it, and, and I play Skyrim, and I'm like, and, and it's and it's and it's difficult because you have to sort of try to kind of try to wrap my head around where they're at. I mean, I, I was like, oh, there's a romance with Skyrim characters. Okay, and I went in, and it's like you give them, a, a, you wear if you wear an amulet or you give them an amulet. Like, oh, I forget how they went. Okay, you you buy the yeah, amulet. you wear it, and then you talk wear to it. Them. And then basically you talk to them, and, and, and it's basically like, hey, I see you're wearing the amulet of want some. Do you want some? And <laughs> you're married. And it's like, oh, okay. That was, I was not expecting that. And I mean, it, it, it's not that it's bad. It's just, it's, just, it's different. And, and it's weird to see people have an emotional reaction to that. And it's like, did they have that reaction in the context of, of how they were enjoying the, the game? Or was it to the follower specifically, or, or was it that um, the follower was kind of a blank slate, so they imagined kind of this whole subtext going on, whether it was actually there or not? I mean, it's 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 a on one hand it's interesting, on the other hand it's a little bit depressing because it's like wow, maybe maybe we put way more words into our companions that are actually required. <laughs> Here, here's an emulator of what some. I wonder how that. <laughs> 
Uh, so, I mean, uh, that, that, that's, I always find it intriguing. I, I have a hard time playing RPGs and enjoying them the same way that I, I think uh, a lot of players do. Just because I, I if I play an RPG, uh, I'm analyzing it to death. And I, I, I'm seldom sort of losing myself in, in sort of the, the game because I'm always sort of dissecting the story. And the, 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 especially if I have companions sort of looking at the systems and stuff, I, I, I can only really play like a, I have to play like a strategy game or something for me to enjoy it the same way a fan would. Um, but if, if I look at something that, that we that did things that were sort of similar to us, I'd say you look at something like um, Planescape Torment, um, in terms of that they had, they had, they did probably the closest to what we do um, in terms of followers that you have uh, um, interact, you know, entire conversations with and an evolution. I mean, of course, Tor Torment did it at, at, a, at an entirely different level. Uh, they were very narrative driven, right? But uh, uh, that that is, that is, I certainly think think is the the, the all time bar as far as I'm concerned. I love that you can even go back as far as, as Super Mario World with Yoshi. I, I was doing some research on different companion stuff online, and it was like, you know what? You're right, goddammit. <laughs> that was phenomenal. And it took someone to, to implement it in and say, here, let's just work with the, the, the concept of a companion, a, a friend. And in terms of a platformer, now, it's become commonplace now where you'd have that. But again, going back to that and Navi with uh, Legend of Zelda and things like that. And uh, and I absolutely adore that. Joe, what's some of the uh, the ones that you would uh, see as your favorite companions? Like, are we going on our top five list Yeah, let's go, let's go to the top five. What are your top fives? Oh, God, my top five, and I actually had to think really long and hard about this. Uh, number five has to go to Luca from Chrono Trigger because she was my original nerd girl crush. Um, I'm sure developing... Tart's very happy to hear that. <laughs> I, I think she is because Tart actually looks a little bit like Luca. Go figure. Um, Mako from Star Wars The Old Republic because I, as much as people like disliked her, I kind of really liked her character and the fact that she was a lot more deep than people gave credit for. And unraveling her story was a lot of fun. Uh, number three actually goes to Tali from Mass Effect because it's friggin' Tali and she's awesome. Uh, number two would be Liliana from Dragon Age Origins. I just loved her character, loved everything I found out about her story so far, including all the complexities from Dragon Age 2, and I can't wait to see more of that. But number one, who will always hold a, a place in my heart as the best companion of all time, voiced by Jim Cummings himself, Minsk's, and his <laughs> miniature giant space hamster, Boo. Best companion ever. I'm sorry. <laughs> okay, Vince, go ahead with yours. All right, uh, starting at the bottom. Uh, I actually liked Trip from Enslaved uh, Odyssey to the West from last year, I think it was. Maybe. Yep. Yeah, last year. Yep. And the, the the characters in that game were just so good, like so much more than I was expecting. It really drew me into that world. And it was a great interaction between her and uh, Monkey. <laughs> but it also kind of paralleled the next one on my list, which is Elena from Uncharted. And they, they had that same relationship, just like she did with Drake. So great stuff there. And I couldn't pick between two and three, so I made a 2A and a 2B. And that was Jack from Mass Effect 2 and Meryl from Dragon Age 2. Because in all of my grand adventures, all the women I've wooed, all of the quirky reptilian doctors I've slaughtered, those are really the only two romances that I was truly engaged in and I cared about those characters in both of those games. And then number one. I have to go with HK47. He, he's the gold standard. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Now, you guys mocked me pre-show, but 
mine and and I I can point to other people who will agree to this as well too. My five is tied with. You know I, the voices in your head don't count, right? I put Ellis <laughs> down because I he, we're not on the list. That yeah, no, me. yeah. Um, I put Ellis from Left 4 Dead 2. Yes, you can play him, but he also is an AI companion that'll follow you around, and he is absolutely fantastic. Loved all his lines, but tied with that was the freaking companion cube from Portal. They made you care about this inanimate object because of all of the, the, the mental anguish that you're being put through and everything. It was like a psychological experiment that they made you care about this inanimate object so much that it pained you to kill it. I have a counterpoint to that. It's just a cube. Then you played it wrong. You played it wrong. You did not read enough into the subtext. You did of- not. The companion cube. Okay, number four for me is Calio, the Janus. And uh, like you were saying with Mako, Calio was just a phenomenal character to romance. I, I married her on one of my Imperial agents. Um, luckily, he was a, a badass who had no moral standards at all. And But it was fantastic to follow her storyline because of all the stuff that you find out about her and how the pathological lying and everything. And it just made for this very twisted romance between the two of them. But there was so much depth to it. Uh, number three, I've got Alex from Half-Life 2. I mean, when we're looking at what companions were back then... And especially a very strong female character, that was Alex. I mean, that came out uh, of nowhere and just made Half-Life 2. My two is Morgan, because, again, it it was such a phenomenal story. So much depth. She was my shorty. And uh, and then my number (laughs) one is tied only because of my male playthrough and my female playthroughs for Sheps. Because uh, my male, Talizora, was the one. Tali Zora from Mass Effect 2 and 3, such a phenomenal storyline, such an amazing character, so well written, absolutely adored her. And then uh, my female, my femship, it was Thane, that she romanced him in 2, and then what you find out about him in 3 as well, I mean, such a deep character, this, this religious assassin... And so, again, very well written. I Both of those deserve top spots for me. So, David, you saw this coming. You don't have to mm-hmm. give us five, but what are some of your top characters? Um, let's see. In, in, I'll, 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 I'll limit it to games I did not work on. Um, let's see. Uh, Dacon from Planescape Tormund. Uh, I really loved his explanation of the, the Circle of Zerthamon. Uh, there, was a, there was a whole evolution... I mean, I mean, uh, prior to playing Planescape, I'd never really thought about the Githzerai, uh, or th- I really, really thought of them much at all, or what they were about. But uh, uh, Dacon sort of hit the, 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 the you had to sort of try and and uh, work your way through his revelation of lore, and, and and even though there was there was lots of explanation, I found it very interesting, and and it made me it gave me an appreciation for the Githzerai that that I that I didn't have prior to that. Um, let's see, Kreia from uh, uh, Knights of the Old Republic 2. Um, I really, I really adored that, uh, the, the, the sort of the, her arc across the entire game, sort of, uh, I love the sort of, uh, um, Chris Avalon always loves subverting tropes, right? And so here's this, this, uh, uh, not only a mentor, but, uh, an old woman who, 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 
uh, I don't think I want to spoil it, but or maybe is the spoiler limited? Uh, Go it's for it. It's been long enough. It's long enough. Yes, <laughs> there's a statute of limitation. Uh, that she turns out to be the the villain of the game. I just thought that was that was absolutely fantastic. Um, let's see, uh, Morden, Morden Solis. I just adore him. Uh, I just even his. I just love not listening to him talk. And I love. I know him. everyone loves him singing, it but I mean, for me, you what? There's an inside joke here that you're sorry. These guys should at least let you finish talking. No, it's because Vince, of course, killed Morden. So we we Joe and I had been talking about it while we were playing the game because, of course, I don't think that especially nowadays too, you can't play a game without playing it with other people just because you're discussing it with them, whether it's on AIM or Twitter or whatever kind of thing. So Vince or Joe and I were going back and forth when because we were doing the Morden stuff around the same time. And it was like Morden stealing the freaking game. Like those moments with Morden was like, he is the hero of Mass Effect 3. Wow. Yeah, I suppose that's true, isn't it? I, I haven't finished Mass Effect 3 yet. I'm a very bad person. I'm still in the process of playing it. Um, let's see. Uh, what was who, who was the... I'm trying to remember her name. Uh, the succubus from Planescape Torment. False from Grace? False from Grace? Yeah. I remember I, I really enjoyed her as well. I hate to keep going back to Torment. I think that was a sort of a seminal game as far as uh, my enjoyment of RPGs go. Um... Is there anyone else that comes to mind? I'm going to regret not. I'm going to, you know, as soon as we're done this, I'm probably going to come up with like half a dozen. Oh, of course. I'll be like, oh, oh how did I not remember that? So, yeah, I'll probably just leave it there. All right. Okay, well, with that, we're actually going to call it a wrap. We've kept you long enough. I want okay. to thank you very, very much for popping by. This was just, it's fantastic to talk to people who are passionate about what they do as well. And uh, and you definitely convey that. We, we really appreciate well, you. everything you've done. For folks who don't know, uh, check out the novels by David Gator. There's The Stolen Throne, The Calling, and Asunder. I have not yet read Asunder. It's on my reading I'm the, list. I'm in the process of You're, reading Yeah, I oh, can't so. wait to get to it. But The Stolen Throne and The Calling, absolutely fantastic novels. You owe it to yourself to read it. The, the first comic series is also done. I think it's coming out in a hardcover collected edition in July. Well, I'm not done yet. I was going to mention oh, that. Oh, oh, sorry. No, no, that's all right. <laughs> I thought I would just throw it in myself. I, I, you don't have to pimp that's your stuff. Right. I will pimp it for you. Don't worry about it. Right. Yes, The Silent Grove from uh, Dark Horse Comics. Uh, definitely make sure to read that. Actually, we're going to be covering that on our comic book podcast. And actually, I was going to ask you if you would like to guest on our comic book podcast that Vince and I do, and we could talk just about the Silent Grove at some point. Sure, if you'd like to have one. Oh, of course. No, that would be absolutely fantastic. So with that, we're going to call it a wrap. Thanks to everybody who joined us in the audience. Of course, you can get the show notes and everything else at For The Lore. We are on Twitter at For The Lore and email at ForTheLore at gmail.com. With that, we'll talk to you guys next week. This is David Gator from Bioware, and you're listening to For The Lore. Video game companions are something that a lot of people take for granted. While some of us recognize their importance, it seems just lost on others. Companions in video games are not a new concept. In fact, you can look back even as early as Nintendo games like A Boy and His Blob or Mega Man and see that there were in fact incredibly important companions without which the games would not be able to progress. As time went on, 
games evolved past the point of just using sidekicks as vehicles to get past game mechanics, and they became integral parts of the story and the development of the main character. Without them, in many cases, the story would be wildly different and something that we would barely remember compared to now. In some cases, the companions completely dwarf the main character and take on a life of their own. The first on the list of games I'm going to talk about today is going to be Chrono Trigger, an RPG that took people's hearts by storm in 1995. Produced by Square, the game was a critically and commercial success. But why? The main character was nothing more than a sword-wielding warrior who did not have any lines in the script, so to speak. The game did have multiple endings, plot-related side quests which focus on a character development and a unique combat system for the time. But those side quests, that character development, and those endings didn't mean anything if you take the companions out of the equation. Even the story itself only really becomes a story because of two companion characters in particular. Luca, an inventor and genius, is demonstrating her latest invention, a teleport system. Marl volunteers to be teleported only to have her pendant interfere and send her careening through time back 400 years. Chrono then sets off to find her, using the pendant to replicate the phenomenon. Without those two characters, the story never would have started. Those two also happen to be the strongest companions in the list. Luca, being a longtime friend of Chrono, often offers insight and wisdom at very opportune times. She also helps to supply the narrative throughout much of the game, since Chrono doesn't have a voice of his own. Marlo is actually a princess, and kind of the love interest for Chrono. She can often be seen also providing narrative, and has many points in the game where she will banter back and forth with Luca or the other characters. The list of companions grows with Robo, Frog, Isla, and eventually Magus. Each character has a unique personality, unique perspective on the world, and unique motivations, whether it's protecting the princess, protecting the kingdom, serving saviors and learning about humanity, or trying to bring an end to the big baddie. It was a complex story, made so by the companions. If anything, Krona was really just a passenger in their story, and was more of the plot vehicle than any of the companions. It was really the first time a game like this had happened, where the main character wasn't the most important piece of the puzzle. And even now, when asked about the game, people will tell you about Luca, Marl, Frog, Robo, Isla, or Mages, but not really have anything at all to say about Chrono. It's an important distinction and still remains one for the time. Next up is actually a, a suite of games, the Final Fantasy series, which once again buys Square. Also again, an RPG of exquisite pedigree. The game series took on a life of its own and spans many different worlds and times, with almost no two being the same. I'm going to talk about a couple recent titles in the series to highlight exactly how important the supporting cast of companions is to the game. Let's start with Final Fantasy VII, often hailed as one of the greatest Final Fantasy games of all time. But why? The main character Cloud is often described as a whiny child. He's an ex-soldier turned mercenary employed by Avalanche, an eco-terrorist group. Cloud is confused and conflicted throughout most of the game, and has arrogant tendencies with a penchant of remaining cool even at inopportune times. To be honest, he's remembered most often as a dick. No, he wasn't the reason the game was such a success, and instead I feel that it was because of the supporting cast. Vincent Valentine is a great example of a supporting character, or an optional character, that stole the show, and one that even went on to become a protagonist of two games of his own. Vincent is a dark, brooding, and sardonic character whose heart has been numbed by tragic love. 
He loved the person who not only saved him, but also cursed him to become a living weapon. He's essentially a vampire in the series, so to speak, but his reactions, his mannerisms, and his look made him an incredibly powerful character, as well as that tragic love. Tifa Lockhart is a childhood friend of Cloud's and a skilled martial artist, also a member of Avalanche and one of the main reasons Cloud was invited to the eco-terrorist group. She's also the one that helps unlock Cloud's memories in the game, and without her, the main character would have no clue who he really is and where he came from, and would not have even gotten involved in Avalanche to have any of that start. Aerith was a flower peddler on the streets of Midgar, who was sought after by Shinra Research because she is the last of the Sentra, a civilization that was destroyed by a lunar cry, a forgotten world, essentially, of the world's history, their, their past. Her story is so full of tragedy and hope as she is key to destroying the world or saving it. These are just a few examples. There's a full cast of characters that dwarf Cloud and are more important to advancing the plot. In fact, they truly define the game. The same can be said about Final Fantasy X, in which just about everyone hated the main character Titus. Yuna is a young summoner from Spira and is, in actuality, the main protagonist of the story. She, while you play as Titus, she steals that role. She is the daughter of the High Summoner Braska and is in full of childlike innocence and wonder that just makes her endearing to the players. That innocence also belies a strength that runs to her very core. She is a transformative character that without having, the game would not have even taken place. Oran is a friend of Titus's father and an old warrior who watched over Titus as he grew up. He takes on a role as Yuna's guardian with Titus on her journey, but is probably one of the most complicated stories to unravel in the game. He is tied not only to Yuna and her journey here, but also her father and the events of that time. He is in fact an unsent spirit, and keeps his secret throughout most of the game, with little hints such as not wanting to go to a certain place where the veil between the two worlds of the living and the spirits is particularly thin. Waka and Lulu are also complicated characters with deep backgrounds, unique views in the world, and who have amazing banter, and without which most of the story would make little sense. In fact, Waka's view on the world and a certain group, the Al-Bahid, is such a powerful thing, and the way that his view changes over the game, that most people talk about that than the actual main character themselves. In this game, as well, people tend to remember the supporting cast and write off the main character. Without those well-written companions, the game would not have been nearly as powerful or as memorable as it was, and in fact, would be a completely different experience. While we're on the topic of companions in gaming, one cannot talk about companions without going to the Bioware territory, a company that does companions quite like no other and with amazing results. The introduction of romanceable companions was a powerfully bold move that made the companions stand out even more than any game series before. Look back on the Mass Effect series, a game series that has gathered the love and affection, most of which can be attributed directly to the companions. Shepard is a character that people love because he or she becomes an extension of them. Sure, but each of the companions has a unique personality, a unique view on the universe, and their stories are quite spectacular. Liara, Miranda, Caden, Garrus, Thane, and all the rest, all of them have wonderfully deep stories. And a lot of the fun in the game has been spent unraveling their past, finding out what makes them tick, or helping them with their personal missions. 
The main story of the game notwithstanding, the secondary questing based around these companions is second to none, and breathes so much life into the game and the universe, proving that things beyond the main story are as important. Throughout all three games, there were players whose choices were influenced by their companions whether it was so that they wouldn't leave or die, or because there was a blooming romance between the main character and that particular companion. Players identified with these secondary characters, and oftentimes are considered more human than Shepard. Fan art, fanfic, cosplay events, everywhere you go, you'll find more people dressed or commenting on the companions than Shepard themselves. Staying with Bioware, Dragon Age was another triumph of the companion. The main character in this game had no voice. While you chose your options, you were mute. Your companions, on the other hand, all of them had some very interesting things to say to you, about you, or about what was going on. Dragon Age was the perfect fantasy dungeon adventure for many people, and a lot of that has to do with the companions your character gathered along the way. As in Mass Effect, they all had some very deep stories and personalities. Each companion could offer up a personal quest, something that only they could ask of the main character if their affection towards the nameless Grey Warden was high enough. This feature added even more depth to the game. Honestly, without the companions and without the side quests, the mysteries they unraveled, or the game that they basically made of themselves, it would be a completely, or comparatively, short game compared to the hundreds of hours people poured into the game because of those side quests and companions. Not only were their stories interesting, but the reaction between party members while in quests or in battle, not only to their foes or you, but to each other, was unparalleled. Liliana, a bard from the Orlesian Empire who happens to be a member of the Chantry, has one of the most complicated and interesting backgrounds I have ever come across. Many people fell in love with her character, and not only is her story important to the first game, but her story is, gets even more complicated and more important with the events of Dragon Age 2 and presumably going on into the third of the series. Wynn is a prominent member of the Circle of Magi and a powerful spirit hero, healer and staunch in her views, and has many incredible exchanges with characters like Liliana, Ogren, and particularly Shale. Anders also has some wonderful exchanges in both games, and is a very strong personality whose story is tied so closely up in DA1 and DA2 with the happenings of the world. One can only imagine that this character will come back. Moving on to the last of the Bioware games that I will discuss today will be Star Wars The Old Republic, and it is a perfect example of balance, of character and companion, proving that you can love the main character of your story and the companions on equal footing. The companions here take the best of Mass Effect and Dragon Age to give you an amazing combination of story, love, and character development. Their companion quests are always amazing and reveal not only unique aspects of their own story, but of the greater universe as a whole. It's quite amazing how much of an impact your companions have on your choices and what you know about a rather expansive universe and what's supposed to be an MMO. Think about all these games and then think about what they would be like if you were all by yourself, if those companions weren't around to lend you insight, story, or to help you along your way. Would they be the same game? I don't think they would be quite as popular or quite as powerful if they didn't include them. Each companion adds another level of complexity to the story, to your character. In many cases, if you remove the main character, those companions would still have full and rich lives, and full complete stories in those game worlds. This is the state of gaming right now. The bar has been raised. Companions are no longer rushed from Mega Man, 
but integral parts of the story and plot, as well as how the main characters play, feel, and react. Without them, these games wouldn't be the games we love. You can hear us all right? Yes. <clears throat> I don't think I can see you. Nope. It's just an audio, so we don't... <laughs> you're welcome. Yeah, really? <laughs> <laughs> On Joe's behalf, you're welcome. <laughs> Hoogs, this, see, this is why you're not calling in, all right? That right there. Oh, what's going on? Oh, I'm just talking to some people in the chat room. We've got some regulars that come all the time. And one of them's an angry Scotsman. You probably know him already. <laughs> <laughs> He's that guy you hear about in the office. <laughs> the Mass Effect team maybe would know about him. Oh, they do. They do. <laughs> Talk about hitting the nail on the head there. <laughs> See, Hoogs, you've made an impression. Not necessarily a positive one, but you have made an impression. Freaking Hoogs twittering. Hoogs, that is not being nice. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know who taught you nice. That ain't it. My tongue gets tied when I try to speak. My inside shake like a leaf on a tree. There's only one cure for this body of mine.